How's everyone doing? Good. Did you guys have a good Christmas? Awesome. Okay, turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, it says this, starting in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And today what I want to do is I want to focus on verse 10 specifically, where it says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This word discern, some of your versions might translate it to examine, to look into, to figure out. Those are all good translations. Basically, we're looking in depth at what? What is pleasing to the Lord? And this is the question I want to answer today. What pleases the Lord. What pleases the Lord? Now, I believe that most people here want to please the Lord. Is that a true statement? All right, good. How do we do that? Do we just obey and it just kind of works out? I mean, maybe in a general sense that's true, but I think there's some key things that we can see in the Word that show us specifically what pleases the Lord. First, this. True or false? Everyone in here is a child. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, well, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> you can mean it two different ways, right? In the, in the sense of age, right, you hit adulthood, you really aren't a child in that sense. But in another sense, we're all children, right? Because we all have parents. So if you're born, guess what? You're a child. Congratulations. So we all have parents. We can do things that encourage our parents make them glad, make life easier for them, right? Even as adults, that's true. Uh, do any of those things make you more of a son or more of a daughter? No. This is kind of like a little dialogue we're having right now. All right? If you guys start talking too much, I'll tell you to be quiet. <laughs> okay. None of those things, okay? If you make them proud, happy, encouraged, that doesn't make you more of their son or more of 
their daughter, right? You are a child by nature. We can also do things to discourage our parents, hurt them, make life tougher for them, right? Does that make you any less of a son or less of a daughter? No. So, you are the child of your parents and nothing can change that fact, even if they want to change it. (laughs) Just kidding. So my point is this. As we look at what pleases the Lord, this is not a salvation issue. If you're a child of God, you're a child of God, period. Right? So we're not trying to please the Lord for salvation. We're trying to please him because we already have the salvation. We are able to please him because he already is our father. Okay? It's not for justification either. This does not involve your standing before God. Right? If you are a child of God, he has declared you to be righteous in his sight. And you can do many, many sins. We all have. That does not change your standing before him. You are still righteous in his sight. So it's not a justification issue. I would say it is a sanctification issue. Christ is transforming us. You guys been transformed this year? Hopefully, right? The Lord is working in you. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. Hold your, your finger in Ephesians, but go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 3. Let's start in verse 18. And we all, 3.18, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, we are being transformed. That's the idea. You get saved. What happens when, you know, Hannah, what did you call it? The slimy baby or something like that? Okay. What happens to that slimy baby? Well, you dry it off first of all. (laughs) But it starts to grow. Right? It starts to change. It starts to get bigger. Well, the same is true for spiritual children. They should start to grow. They should start to be transformed. They should start to experience growth. They're being transformed. We should be being transformed. So we're talking about a sanctification issue here. It's also an imitation issue. Look back at at Ephesians. Back in verse 5, the very first verse says, Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. How? As beloved children. You can see yourself as many things in the New Testament. Servant. Bondservant, slave, friend to the Lord, primarily in your relationship with the Father, you should see yourself as a child. That's, that's what should color your entire outlook of the Christian life, that you are a child of God. All those other definitions are good and accurate and true, but first and foremost, you're a child. So it's an imitation issue. Look at 1 John chapter 2. In verse 6, it says this, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. However Christ lived his life, that's how we should try to live our lives. Now let's talk for a second about people-pleasing versus God-pleasing. The only opinion we should ultimately be concerned about is God's. What happens when we start to try to people-please? 
we start to reorient our lives in a way that focuses on that person or those people. And what happens then? Well, usually what happens is we're no longer pleasing God because we've changed and oriented ourselves in such a way to please people to the exclusion of really pleasing God. We shouldn't be concerned about being people pleasers. This is what Paul's getting at in Galatians, if you look there. This is what he says. Chapter 1. In verse 9 he says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He makes it pretty clear you have to choose one or the other. Servant of God, servant of man. You can't do both. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 8 he says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's the aim, to please Him. We want to be God-pleasers, not people-pleasers. So let's look at a few verses on pleasing the Lord. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. As he's wrapping up, the writer of Hebrews is wrapping up in in chapter 13. He says this in verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Well, the question is this. It says uh, do good and to share. Um, Who are we to be good to? Well, context is king, all right? Always use context to answer questions. And we have to go back to the beginning of 13 to start to see who are some of the people we're supposed to be good to. In verse 1, he says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Okay, so that's the first category of people. Strangers. This is a hard one. Do you guys get many opportunities to do good to strangers? Yeah, a little bit sometimes, right? Um, I don't want to water down the impact of the verse by saying that we can do this at the supermarket when we're checking out. Now, that's maybe a good place to start, uh, but, but there's something much bigger in mind here. He's talking about showing hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels, unawares, it says. So he's talking about bringing them into your house, actually. Okay, that would cost you something. It would cost you time. It would cost you money. But that's the first category. Let's keep reading. Remember those, verse 3, who are in prison, as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. That's who we're supposed to do good to. This is another hard one. Now, with widespread persecution occurring, in this context, it's referring to believers who have been imprisoned for their faith. And if you don't know about prison conditions back then... Uh, our prisons in America make it look like the, our prisons look like the Holiday Inn. All right, it was nasty, brutal, rough, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all that stuff happened in the prisons back then. It was horrible, and you had to provide for yourself, which means uh, your food was not given to you. You were dependent on other people outside of the prison bringing the food to you. 
but prisoners is one. Let's keep reading. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So who are we supposed to do good to? Our spouse. Now this might be harder than the other two. (laughs) Do good to your spouse. How you guys doing with that? That can be challenging. You're supposed to do good to your spouse. Keep reading. Keep your life free, verse 5, from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Next category, church leaders. Oh, wait, maybe that's the hardest of all. (laughs) Hopefully not. Okay, those are just some of the categories of people that we are commanded to do good to. And notice what Paul calls it. In verse 16, he says, For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Doing good is a sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, we don't have animals to sacrifice today, right? Now, some of you, you know, don't love cats or dogs or different things. We don't sacrifice because Christ was the final sacrifice and is the final sacrifice. But we can, we can participate in spiritual sacrifices. And that's what we read earlier in Ephesians. It talks about Sacrifices. Here he's talking about sacrifices. So he tells us to do good, and then he reminds us where that comes from. If we keep reading, obey your leaders and submit to them, verse 17. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do, to, the, to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right. He's equipping us, right? He's equipping us to do the good. What does it say? How is it happening? By the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus Christ himself equips you. You don't think you're sufficient? Then you're saying Jesus wasn't sufficient. He has made you to be sufficient because he equips you to be able to do it. But here's the thing. It's not enough to simply be good, whatever that means. We must do good. We must do good. And we can't define holiness. This really, I'm guilty of this myself sometimes, but it really bugs me. Probably because I do it myself. But we define holiness sometimes by all the things we don't do. That doesn't really make sense. Because usually when we give definitions... We give, we're supposed to give like positive. This is what the definition means, not this is what the defi- definition doesn't mean. 
And I think sometimes we can pat ourselves on the back because we think we're holy because of all the things we're not doing. And it kind of gives us really, I would say, like a false sense of, of being holy when maybe we're really not. Because we need to define holiness by what it is. And holiness, at its root, means to be set apart. It means to be dedicated to God. So it's like you've, you've got this whole bunch of things, and you take one off and set it apart, and you dedicate that to God. That's what holiness means. It's set apart for God's use. It's dedicated to God for what? Whatever he wants. And that can be kind of scary. But for whatever he wants to do with you. Holiness. Yes, it's absolutely, it's character, right? It's moral purity. But it's much more than that. And we need to define it by what we do. If we just sat around and never did anything, obviously you, you wouldn't do anything bad, right? Because you weren't doing anything. You weren't physically doing bad things. But if someone just sat around and never did anything, we wouldn't just look at them and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that person's holy. All right? So there's an intrinsicness to it, a moral aspect to it, of doing and not doing, but there's action to it. Action. So when we talk about holiness, we're getting at something here. We're talking about sanctification. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. That word saints, that's where we get the word holy. You could translate it, and some versions do, to all the holy ones. This is him writing to the Corinthians. All right, They've got all sorts of immorality going on. And he calls them holy. Why? Because Christ had transformed them and was transforming them. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, to the holy ones. Who is he writing to? The church. All of them, he's saying, are holy. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. All the saints. All the holy ones. Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints. Let me tell you, act like you have the holiness that God has declared you to have. Act like it. He's declared you that you have it. He's called you it. Holy ones, saints. And I exhort you to act like it. To live it out. To do it. Look at 1 Corinthians again, back in chapter 6. In verse 9 he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of us. Right? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay? You were sanctified. That's the same word there that we get holy or saints. Okay? If it was a word, you could say you were holified. That's what it's saying. God has already done that for you. Now, when you talk about sanctification, there's really kind of two sides to it. There's the idea that we were sanctified, as this verse shows, but there's other verses that talk about us being sanctified, right? So there's the initial, God swoops in, he justifies us, he sanctifies us, he declares us righteous, he makes us holy, and then we continue to be transformed into his image. We are being made holy. Oh, that's my first point. Second point, back in Hebrews, back in 13, he says in verse 16, after saying to not neglect to do good, he says, and to share what you have. To share what you have. You know what that word share is? It's a word that you guys have all heard before in the Greek. Koinonia. How do we normally translate that? Fellowship. All right? Fellowship. A number of times this word has a financial aspect to it, as we see here. Right? You're sharing what you have. I'm not sure we think of fellowship that way today, um, but we should, because this word, when it's used, you see that ring to it over and over and over again. Look at, look at Romans 15. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses today, by the way. So in verse uh, 26 of Romans 15, he says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. That word contribution, again, is that word koinonia. Some fellowship they've made. They're fellowshipping with the poor saints at Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, let's see, where should we begin? Uh, let's start in 1 of, of 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Uh, that word, taking part, again, is that word koinonia. You know, here's my general rule. This is mine, okay? It's not some scriptural principle, per se. But my general rule is when I see a need, I try to meet it. When I see a need, I try to meet it to the best of my ability. I'm talking financially. If I see a need, I try to meet it. And if I'm going to err, I personally err on the side of giving. Now, this when he says share what you have, that, I mean, that has financial implications. Now, some of you know me, and some of you know me rather well. You know, I'm pretty frugal. 
but I'm not frugal just to be frugal so I can save for myself and have more. Part of the reason I'm frugal is so I have more to give. So I try to be good with my money. Why? So I have more to give and to fill this kind of principle of my own for my family. You see a need, you meet it. So when he says share what you have, there's financial implications there. And I'm not talking about this church specifically, although that's an application, right? Uh, being generous to the church. I'm talking an even wider scope. An even wider scope. And I'm telling you right here that the text says that the Lord is pleased when you share your finances. That's what it says. He's pleased. Parents, think of your, to yourselves how you feel when your child does something extremely selfless. When they make a sacrifice that costs them something, something tangible, how do you feel? You feel proud, right? You're encouraged. Why do you feel that way? Well, you've seen the gospel in action, really, right? You, you watch some movies sometimes, and the hero makes some uh, amazing sacrifice. Why does that inspire us? Because we're seeing, really, a, a glimpse of the gospel, self-sacrifice. And I think one of the reasons it pleases the Lord, why? It, it's a sacrifice on our part. That's why it calls it a sacrifice. It really is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. You have to go without to be generous. You have to go without to give your finances. There's something you're giving up. Let's look at another text. Philippians 4. Verse 15 of Philippians 4. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Again, that word partnership, koinonia. And you can see the link very clearly. No one, no one entered into fellowship with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, verse 16, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I mean, these Philippians were, were his supporters, right? They were helping him out financially. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, to understand Philippians, you really have to know why he's writing it, which is probably true of any book in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Why are they writing it, right? And it starts with giving. In fact, turn there, Philippians 1. So I'm going to give you some hermeneutical help for the next time you read Philippians. It'll help you put it in the proper context. So he starts out with his normal introduction, Philippians 1, 1 and 2, verse 3, he thanks them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now he says that in almost every one of his letters, right? But then he says this, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now we think partnership, we're like, yeah, we're locking arms together, we're serving the Lord together. That's true. That's an aspect of fellowship, but it's really not the aspect that's in mind here, because we see it defined throughout. The partnership is financial. It's a financial partnership. So he starts, Philippians, talking about giving. He ends it with giving. What is he talking about to them? They are partnering with him to help out the poor saints. And what do you always hear Philippians is about? Joy, right? He's always, rejoice. He's right, read a little more. Rejoice. Rejoice. Well, there's something to catch here, folks. 
All right? This fellowship, this giving, and this rejoicing, they kind of go together. They kind of go hand in hand. So all throughout, you're seeing this partnership and this fellowship, but you're also seeing this rejoicing being combined together. Giving and joy go together. Are you struggling with giving? Meditate on verse 17 of chapter 4. Not that I seek the gift. Paul says, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What in the world does that mean? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit? Some of yours might say, I seek the profit that increases to your credit. What's he talking about? They're partnering financially. He's not concerned about trying to get money from them. He is concerned about what? What their money does. What does it do? The, pro- the fruit that increases to your credit. Their money, he says, that they had given freely, God was using to increase his kingdom, to build up his kingdom, to minister to his saints. And he says, it's to your credit. To the Philippians' credit. They were partnering with Paul in the ministry to Jerusalem. Now, I was driving in my car, you know, it's at the end of the year, right? All these ministries are making appeals, right? Appeal after appeal after appeal. <clears throat> Nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I was listening to all these appeals. I'm like, man, there's a lot of appeals. I'm like, man, is that, Lord, is that? And they always, they're using the same terminology, partnership, partnership, partnership. I'm like, is that really a biblical concept that they're partnering and, you know, I'm partaking in the ministry going on over in Africa by supporting an African missionary? Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's what this verse is saying. And, and the money that you guys give here, you partake in it. You partake in the ministry. I wasn't at the Thanksgiving service. I was off that weekend, but I listened to the podcast. And a number of people stood up and were thanking Pastor Vaughn for his ministry and the different work he had done. That's you guys. You guys, right there, Paul says, the fruit that increases to your credit. You partook in that. The ministry that goes behind closed doors that you don't ever hear about or know about, you occasionally hear about once a year on Thanksgiving service, that's you guys. That you're partaking in it. You're part, we're all partnering together. And the ministry is occurring because of you guys. Because of your generosity. Because of your giving. You play a part and it's given to your credit. And I believe you will be rewarded in heaven. No, you will. In heaven, one day, you will receive a award for your generosity. So giving is a sacrifice, and it pleases the Lord. In addition to doing good and giving, we also have a a command regarding children and parents. Look at Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. How many of you are living at home with your parents? Raise your hand. All right. This directly applies to you. You want to please the Lord? Obey your parents. It also applies to the rest of us because we did agree that we're all children at the very beginning, right? You didn't know I was trapping you, really. <laughs> no, it looks, it's going to look different for a 5-year-old as opposed to a 35-year-old. But we all have parents. 
And it pleases the Lord when we treat them properly with honor and respect. doesn't matter if they're a believer or not, whether they are kind or not. Don't return insult for insult, right? If you have parents, which you do, you are supposed to honor them. Okay, let's move on. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Specifically here, he says, it pleases God when we share the gospel. Right? That's the context. They're being sent out. The apostles are here. They're sharing. And we see the comparison again between man and God. It says, entrusted with the gospel, verse 4, so we speak. Guess what? We also are entrusted with the gospel. It wasn't just entrusted to the apostles. It's been entrusted to the church universal. Each one of you in here that claims Christ, you've been entrusted with the gospel. It's been given to you. Just to hold and to hide? No. To do something with. To take care of it, yes. To protect it, yes. To keep it what? From error or impurity? Absolutely. But to preach it. And that pleases God. And we have a lot of work to do with sharing the gospel. And we need to get busy. All right. Some of you aren't sharing because you're afraid. You're a people pleaser. Maybe you're lazy. Get over these things. <laughs> I'm serious. Get over them. You have the Spirit of God in you. Amen? Okay, you're not going to be conquered. Why? Because you're more than conquerors. You have the Spirit. He has washed over you. He has sanctified you. He lives in you. You can be bold for the gospel. You can be bold. Paul did not have anything, access to anything, that you don't have access to. Same Spirit, same Lord, same Father, right? So let's do it. Let's be bold for the gospel. Nothing can stop us. If the gates of hell can't prevail, then the gates of man can't prevail either. Okay? Let's be bold. There's another aspect I want to talk about. It pleases God when we preach, when we use our words. I think there's a broader aspect when we're gracious with our words to one another. Both spoken and written. We need to be careful with the words that we use with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with the emails that we send. I don't get on Facebook a lot, but I'm on there sometimes. And sometimes I'm just... I'm actually disheartened at the way some of us write to other people on Facebook, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would call them. And we're tearing each other down. 
that Satan doesn't even have to do anything. I mean, he just he brings popcorn, right? He he doesn't watch movies; he just watches us because that's the best show for him because we're tearing each other down, and that's what's happening. That go, that is so against the spirit of Christ. Tear one another down to take cheap shots, and that's what the world does. That's not what we do. We build one another up with our words. Same with you, parents. I'm guilty of this. I was doing a whole bunch of stuff yesterday and got really frustrated with my kids, right? And those words, tear down. We can build up or we can tear down. We need to be gracious with our words. The word says, season them with salt. What does that mean? Make them pleasing. Put some flavor to them. Some of you are very blunt with your words. You need to round that edge off a little bit. All right? What do you what do you want to prevail in your house? Law or gospel? Those are really the two options. If you're a believer, one of those two things is going to prevail in your house. Law or gospel? And many of us can lean towards the law and we don't even realize it because we're trying to be faithful to the do's and the don'ts. We miss the spirit of the law, the grace. So we're harping on our kids. Listen, we can't demand our kids to do things that we're falling short in. I mean, I guess we can. It's called hypocrisy. But sometimes I have to remind myself that my 12-year-old and my 10-year-old Look, I'm trying to treat them like they're 25, and I'm expecting a maturity from them that I would expect from a 25-year-old. That's mistaken. That doesn't make sense. I'm expecting a maturity level that I would expect from some, from some of you. That's ludicrous. They're 12 and they're 10. They're going to be immature. They're going to be lacking in knowledge in some areas that I think are common sense. It's not common sense to certain children. That's when grace needs to reign. Not the law. Grace. So what do you want your kids growing up with? Grace or law? The flavor needs to be grace. Yes, there needs to be law, but the flavor needs to be grace. That's what they need. Our words with one another, grace. Yeah, can you drive home a point? Are you absolutely right? Could you make that comment? Sure. That's law. Grace is what we need. Grace. If we don't if we miss grace, we miss it. We miss the whole thing if we miss grace. Because we have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Because it's all grace. What we deserve and what we get are two different things. I want grace. And I have come to a place where I've realized that, right? And each of you too. Well, help your children to realize that. Help them to understand grace. Let them want grace. Make it a sweet thing for them to want. So, In conclusion, do good, be generous, be sharing, be giving. Obey, honor, respect your parents, 
Be bold with your words. Be bold in sharing the gospel. And be gracious as you interact with one another. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be forgiven for, and you've done that. You've poured out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon us. And when the law demanded death and punishment, you chose grace. Father, we thank you for that. Lord, you have equipped us to live these things out. Father, we have your spirit living inside us. Continue to fill us. Pour out your spirit on us to live by grace. To please you, Lord.